This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. With me from the studios of WUNC in Chapel Hill is William Ferris, who is Joel Williamson, eminent professor of history at UNC Chapel Hill, former director of the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Center for Southern Culture at Ole Miss. He also is a fellow Davidson alumnus, and Bill and I have known each other, I hate to admit it, for at least a half century. So, Bill, welcome to the journal. It's great to be with you, Walt. We're going to talk about a new book that Bill has published, and it's really more than a book because it's the printed word, but there's also a DVD, and there's also a CD included. The book is entitled The Storied South, Voices of Writers and Artists. It's a compilation of interviews he has done for the past 40 years with his quest for learning more about the American South. And in your introduction, Bill, you sort of gave the idea that you're questing for it, but you're not sure you're ever really going to find it. Well, it's like peeling an onion. You're constantly learning new things as you go along, but it's the search that's important. You not only included writers, which I'm sure most people would understand great interviews with Eudora Welty and Robert Penn Warren, but you also included musicians, artists, photographers, as well as painters, and you included people who were not Southerners. Now, why did you include folks who were not Southerners? Well, when we look at the South, it's not only Southerners who've studied it and been inspired by it. Charles Seeger the founder of the field of ethnomusicology and his son, Pete, are both New Englanders, but their lives were forever changed by the discovery of uh, mountain music and ballads in North Carolina. Walker Evans, who grew up in Illinois and lived in New York City, had his life forever changed by a month he spent in Hale County, Alabama, which eventually produced a classic book that he and James Agee wrote, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. Mm -hmm. So when we look at the South, we draw on all sorts of people, many of whom are from the South originally, but people have come to the South and been deeply moved, and their lives were forever changed by that experience. Let's talk about then some of the non-Southerners first. You've mentioned the Seegers and, and Walker Evans. Talk about those experiences and then get into perhaps more familiar territory with Robert Penn Warren and Eudora Welty. Well, Charles Seeger was a very distinguished musicologist who was drawn to folk music and to the South as the heartland. And he spent six months in Pinehurst, North Carolina, living in a a mobile sort of trailer that had a tent attached with his wife, Ruth Crawford Seeger, a composer, and his very young son, Pete. And then at a later date, uh, he came back with Pete as a teenager and introduced him to the mountain music and the ballads at a festival in Asheville, North Carolina. So Pete became an avid fan of the banjo, and Charles Seeger spent his life studying this Southern music, and Pete went on to help create the anthem of the Civil Rights Movement, We Shall Overcome. And so their lives, in different ways, were totally shaped and defined by their experience in the American South. You mentioned We Shall Overcome, which really has its roots in black music in the Carolina Low Country, as opposed most of what you were talking about earlier was white music. That's right. Pete heard this early hymn that was created in the Carolinas, in the Low Country, and at the Highlander Center, he and Guy and Candy Carowan reworked the hymn with Reverend Martin Luther King present to create a kind of musical handle for the civil rights movement. And Dr. King was visibly touched by the sound of We Shall Overcome. And it was originally We Will Overcome. And Pete said that he felt the word shall had a nicer 
way in the mouth as it was being sung. And he made a few changes, rhythmic changes. And overnight, it was it swept the civil rights movement. And since that time, it was sung in Tiananmen Square in China and in other places around the world where civil rights are issues. Walker Evans, a very fine photographer, photographed all over our nation and in Haiti, but his most memorable photographs were done in a short period of less than a month that he spent with James Agee in Hale County, Alabama, and the result of that work was a classic book, uh, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. When was Walker Evans working in Hale County, Alabama? I think it was in the 40s. Just generally for our listeners trying to put it in in context, and Seeger was doing it about the same time or a little bit earlier? A little earlier. Okay. There's a fourth person in the book, John Dollard. All right, and then Dollard's classic book on class and caste is also from the 1930s. That's a little later. That would be the 40s. 40s, okay. Yeah. And you knew him when you were on the faculty at Yale, right? I did. I had used John Dollard's work in my dissertation on black folklore from the Mississippi Delta. It was a perfect way of understanding how race was defined within the Southern world. So when I went to Yale in 1972, to my delight, I was told that he was living there. He had retired and came to his office every day. So I knocked on his door and he was very generous in allowing me to interview and photograph him. And we became lifelong friends because of that. But he was another uh, northern scholar who came south, and his work is best remembered for that book, Cast and Class in a Southern Town. The town was Indianola, Mississippi. Well, now, Indianola, you're getting into your turf. You grew up in the Delta. That's right. Indianola is also the home of B.B. King, and interestingly, Dollard really doesn't mention the blues at any point. He mentions black religious music, which was very powerful, and he was deeply moved to hear that. But it's an example of how he was living in the heartland of the blues and was simply not aware of it because he was interested in other things. Or would it be the fact that the blues would have been performed primarily in all-black clubs and he would have been breaking cast had he gone at that that's time. A, that's exactly right. And he knew that if he broke the caste system that it would change his ability to work within the community. And that's an issue that everyone who's worked in the South with the African-American worlds understands very well because of the history of segregation. Now that we're in the Delta, let's talk a little bit about Bill Ferris personally growing up, because that's a real part of your story and how you became a scholar of the American South. Well, I grew up on a farm just below the Delta in the hills in Warren County, and there were many black families on that farm as well as my grandparents and my family, and I became a fan of storytelling at a very young age when my grandfather would tell stories like Alababa and the Forty Thieves and at the end of it when I was a young child I would say granddad tell it again and he would patiently tell it again and there was a little grocery store on the farm run by a woman named Virginia Peel Davis and another grocery store, country store across the river, run by a lady named Aiden White. And I spent a lot of time on the front porch of those two stores listening to stories, which were part of my childhood. And I always held those stories close. And that, I think, is what led me to a career as a folklorist, where I began to record and document storytelling and music in a broader way. You had your first publication when you were in high school, right? 
That's right. It was a, a dramatic monologue written about a dwarf whom I grew up with on the farm named Robert Appleton, who was nicknamed Shorty Boy, and that's the title of the story I wrote. You continued writing at Davidson. You also got involved in drama. In fact, you wrote a one-act play, didn't you, I think? That's right. I, I wrote a one-act play that was produced at Davidson called Gone. All along the way, I was drawn to the human voice, and I at one point aspired to being a writer. Faulkner was always my hero, and Eudora Welty. But I realized that I could never do the kind of things they did, and I began to head towards a career in English literature, looking at writers who had worked with folklore, and that eventually led to the field of folklore and a Ph.D. that would allow me to do the oral histories that I was drawn to so deeply, and eventually to be able to teach and have a career in that field. You started out your academic career at Yale, and then you went first to Memphis and then home to to Mississippi uh, with the Center for the Study of Southern Culture. Sort of like being Burr Rabbit in the Briar Patch. My career has taken me in and out of the South, but I keep returning to the South because it is my home, and uh, it's a place I love deeply and You know, you have a love-hate relationship with its worlds. There are many parts of the South that are uncomfortable. There are other parts that you cherish. And all along the way, I look to people that I admired greatly, like the people in this book, who had had a similar journey and had written or painted or sung or photographed their way through the region. And it's those people that help me get a sense of my own journey and better understand the place that I was trying to to write about as a folklorist. And so as I met these people and realized that I had an opportunity to talk with them in a personal, intimate way, I would pull out my tape recorder and still camera and occasionally my film camera and capture a little glimpse at their lives and so I recently thought it would be helpful uh, to me and hopefully to others to gather all these interviews in a single place and allow them all to kind of talk together back and forth. Uh, Most of them never met each other but they talk about similar topics and hearing them all together gives a deeper understanding of what the South is all about. One thing I noticed that goes through the the conversations of those folks who are Southerners, uh, whether it's Eudora Welty or Robert Penn Warren or several of your artists, they always refer back to an older South. It's almost like Kate Chopin saying you had to have blood knowledge of the war to be able to write. Now, we're not talking about the Civil War, but I think as Faulkner said, the past is not really past, and that is a part of what every Southerner, black and white, has to deal with. It's true. It's, as C. Van Woodward said, it's the burden of Southern history, which is alive and well in our lives today and will always be. And when you're born in the South... You grow up with these worlds, and they shape and define your life in ways that you're often not even aware of. But it is the stories that drive this history, that keep it alive and well. And when we gather for holiday meals at Thanksgiving, the stories flow. And if you ask a Southerner a question Rather than a literal, factual answer, you get a story. And that's what I found that these speakers all had in common. They loved to talk and to tell stories. And it's within the story that you begin to understand what really makes the South tick. And sometimes it's not all always what is said. Sometimes it's what is not said is part of the story as well. 
you had you have to listen for the silences and in terms of trying to get a picture of the South, if you will. That's very true. One of the skills of being a good interviewer is learning to allow the silence to hang there and not be nervous and interrupt it with more questions because often the silence is a pause that is allowing the speaker to drift more deeply into his or her thoughts and then to resume speaking in a way that is quite powerful. Let's look now at some of the interviews in particular. Really, they were the wonderful conversations you had, particularly a series of conversations with Eudora Welty and Robert Penn Warren over time. But let's look at Welty first, because not only is she on the cover of your book, she's a great photographer. People don't realize as well as a, as a, as a writer. I don't know who, studying American literature in college, didn't read Why I Live at the P.O. Your family knew the Welties. Your grandparents knew the Welties growing up, right? That's right. Eudora is the person in the book that I knew longest. My grandparents were friends with her parents, and my father and his siblings knew Eudora and her family. And when I was a young child on the farm where I grew up, Eudora and a group of her artist friends came from Jackson and spent a day having a picnic and sketching the landscape on the farm. And after they left, my mother said, now, when you grow older, you'll realize that one of these people, Eudora Welty, is a very famous writer. And then later, when you and I were at Davidson, I invited Eudora to be the speaker of the year. And to the amazement of the English department and me, she agreed to come. Was that was Bill Goody Kuntz still there? At that time, he was. Okay. Dr. Goody Kuntz introduced her in the in the reading she did in the chapel. Bill probably would not have been surprised, but some of some of those others in the English department were a little bit stiff. They might not have uh, connections. They weren't they weren't Southerners. Well, you know, here's a a writer that they couldn't imagine taking time to come and speak to the students, but. They asked her why she came, and she said, well, I knew Bill's family, and I felt I had to come. Well, that's a very (laughs) Mississippi, very Southern way of thinking. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of Bill Goodykunst, I think you and I have had this conversation before, but that meant he may have been one of the greatest teachers that I ever had. He changed my life, and he made you realize that uh, literature was the most powerful thing on earth, and reading a great novel or a poem could literally change your life. And when he was teaching, that that was a life-changing experience. Not only in the classroom, he got both of us involved in the college theater and the vagabonds. That's right. My one-act play was written in his class and then produced, and I directed, wrote it and directed it under his supervision, Billy Trotter, Another writer at Davidson, a very gifted young freshman, had a a play also that was set in the Hungarian Revolution. Mine was set on the farm in Mississippi, (laughs) and they were both performed together, which was very exciting. I didn't write a one-act play, but the three of us, Trotter, you and I, were in one of Bill Goody Kuntz's productions when he did the York Cycle of Mystery Plays. Do you remember that? I do, vividly. And if I remember correctly, in one of the plays, you either you or Trotter portrayed Jesus Christ, and I was Pontius Pilate and washed my hands of you. <laughs> I, I can't quite remember what my character was, but it certainly was a powerful experience. We also produced Agamemnon. Oh, absolutely, yes. And I remember... Uh, I was in the chorus, yes. and that was the year James Meredith integrated Ole Miss, and the riots broke out, and people were killed. And I remember writing an editorial for the Davidsonian just after that, and quoting the chorus line, "Cry sorrow, sorrow, yet let good prevail." Uh, that sort of captured my grief and sadness 
over that tragedy that had happened. And all of us were wrestling with Jim Crow and how to change those worlds as students. And Goody Kuntz's literary experience was a life-changing one for all of us. I, too, was in the chorus with you and Bill Trotter, and I remember that something that was appropriate, a line, headwinds heavy with past ills. Yes, so, yes. Well, let's move on to the conversation that you had with Eudora Welty. When you were interviewing her, any particular surprises come out? Well, she was full of surprises, and often they were humorous, thoughtful. I remember once calling her. I would go visit her every time I would come back to see my family, and uh, I called once and said, Eudora, I'm coming over on Saturday and wondered if it would be possible to visit. She said, that would be lovely. What time do you want to come? And I said, how about 10.30? And she said, did you say 7.30? And I said, no, 10.30. She said, oh, good. For a moment there, I thought you were testing our friendship. (laughs) She also had a wonderful anecdote about going sailing with Faulkner. It's true. That's a a moment to cherish when these two great writers met. And he invited her out on his sailboat for the day, and she had to wade out in the water to get in the boat. There was no dock, and she was soaking wet when she got in. And she said, but you know, you can't ask William Faulkner to ring you out. <laughs> and she said they sailed all day, and He never said a word, and she never said a word, but it was a lovely visit. Well, you can imagine those two figures on Faulkner's sailboat sailing around Sardis Lake. But she really was soaking up every moment of that. It's interesting in the index of the book, which told me more about the book than I knew before. The longest list of references is not for any of the people actually interviewed, but rather for William Faulkner, because so many of these figures, not only the writers, but the painters, the photographers, all look to Faulkner for inspiration because of the amazing work he did in his writing. In reading the interview with Robert Penn Warren, he gets rather indignant when uh, someone had said earlier that most folks, particularly with the agrarians out of Vanderbilt, had dismissed Faulkner, uh, and he said that was absolutely not the case. The argument being that Faulkner only became accepted after he won his prize and everybody had discovered him. But he pointed out that, that uh, Alan Tate and others had discussed Faulkner's work in print before he became famous. That's true. Warren was part of a group known as the Fugitives at Vanderbilt, and they were voracious readers. They were reading T.S. Eliot and William Faulkner, and Warren later taught at the University of California at Berkeley, and he comments on the fact that Berkeley was a great university, but in terms of poetry and literature, Vanderbilt was much better more aware of the contemporary new sounds than his colleagues were at Berkeley. And when his old friend Cleonth Brooks was first hired at Yale and began to teach a seminar on American literature, he was the first to introduce Faulkner to the students there. So you you see these Southern writers and literary figures embracing early on their colleagues. And Robert Penn Warren and Cleonth Brooks were the first to publish Eudora Welty's short stories when they both taught at uh, LSU and founded the Southern Review. So you see the the development of friendships and literary uh, relationships early on through a number of the people in the book. I found that comment about Berkeley particularly interesting because, yes, there was a the fugitives at Vanderbilt was one center of Southern, particularly poetry, but so was Charleston, and the South Carolina Poetry Society gave the largest prize to an American poet anywhere. Gertrude Stein, all those folks, T.S. Eliot, they all came through Charleston, South Carolina in the 1920s and 30s. 
So Southerners certainly had a reason to react to Mencken's Sahara of the Beaux-Arts when he said there was no culture down here. Well, that's the ultimate irony is that at the moment he wrote that line, there was a cultural explosion underway in the South in a literary world and also in the music, the blues and country music, writers like Faulkner and Richard Wright, Tennessee Williams. The South was the heartland for cultural riches, and that's what this book is all about. The idea that the South was a wasteland reflected really more on Mencken's lack of knowledge than on the reality of what was actually going on. John Shelton Reed has recently published a book called Southern Bohemia, set in New Orleans, in which Faulkner and many artists and writers were just starting their careers. And there is a new book being written as we speak about bohemian communities all over the South, and Charleston certainly is an important part of that picture and looks at how you have a Southern world that is alive and well artistically and, you know, shaping very fundamental new ways of looking at not only the South, but of looking at life. I mean, we are, we can argue that Faulkner is the greatest novelist of all time. Uh, he wrote about the South, as did Welty and Alice Walker, but their work is universal. Alice told me that she was in China talking about the color purple, and someone in the audience came up and said, do you know that's really a Chinese story that you wrote, not a Southern? They had embraced it and claimed it as their own. Bill, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Bill Ferris from Chapel Hill about his new book, The Storied South. When you were talking about Bohemians, uh, reminded me of, I didn't really know him growing up, I knew his work, Eugene Walter. There was a Bohemian community in Mobile, which I found out about as an adult. I didn't know about it uh, growing up, but it very much was not only alive and well, but the connections there with the Paris Review, which Walter was actually one of the founders of the Paris Review. Um, and these Southern men and women had an incredible reach, starting prior to World War II, in between the wars, but it continued afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. There's a poet named Charles Henri Ford who lived in Mississippi, in Columbus, Mississippi, and as a teenager founded this literary magazine there, and he published major poets and writers that he knew about and solicited their contributions. And his, his sister, Ruth Ford, had a relationship with William Faulkner, and he rewrote his book, Requiem for a Nun, as a a theatrical production so that she could act in it. But you find in these unlikely places in the South amazing counterculture and sort of uh, bohemian communities that are highly educated and creative young people. And Faulkner was part of that during that period in New Orleans when he lived in the French Quarter. Julia Mood Peterkin from St. Matthews, South Carolina, or actually Fort Mott, went to the Pulitzer Prize in 1927 for writing about African Americans. Yes. Uh, it's, it's an area that we're just beginning to fully appreciate. And I'm working with a group of friends from around the South at the Mint Museum to develop a major new exhibition on modernism in the South that will focus on Black Mountain College, but modernism, <clears throat> not only in the visual arts, but in the literary scene, was alive and well in this country. And Faulkner and Welty both were artists who created these amazing fin de sketches. Faulkner did sketches of W.C. Handy's band, Welty did sketches of women and cartoons that are very similar to what was happening at the same time in Europe. So there was clear 
awareness of art on both sides of the Atlantic within the South. And that's something that you and I as adults learned firsthand that certainly for 30 years until fairly recently, any American studies program worth its salt at a European university was basically a Southern studies program. That's very true. The, the Europeans were the first to discover Faulkner. The French existentialists embraced him. They embraced the blues and jazz and figures like Memphis Slim lived most of his life, as did Richard Wright in Paris. There's a deep love for the South in Europe and in other parts of the world. And it's because of people like those in this book who took Southern worlds and stories and shaped a kind of artistic expression that really has global appeal. You've got scholars in Scandinavia and France who are major wealthy scholars. I mean, that's been their life's work. That's true. Uh, Michel Fabre, the first biographer of Richard Wright, taught all his life at the Sorbonne. His wife, Genevieve Moreau, was the biographer of James Agee. Uh, the list goes on. Uh, there's a long, distinguished list of European scholars and scholars in other parts of the world who've written on Southern literature, on Southern photography. Uh, some of the biggest exhibitions of William Eggleston's color photography have been done in Germany and in London. So this is a, a global uh, attraction. The South is by no means of interest only to people in the region. Bill, let's move on to, to Robert Penn Warren, who I know was a close friend of yours. I had the pleasure of knowing him as well. Uh, he's my hero, quite frankly. I still think All the King's Men is one of the great Southern novels, but I also love his poetry. But you spent a lot of time with Red Warren at Yale. So let's talk about this young man from Kentucky who grew up and became one of 20th century America's greatest writers. He really was. He was a very distinguished man of letters. Uh, he was a novelist, a poet. He wrote literary criticism, and he was the nation's first poet laureate. Our current poet laureate, Natasha Trethaway, is from Mississippi. Uh, so we have two bookends, our current and our first poet laureate, who are Southerners. And Robert Penn Warren was a voracious reader, and he was in love with literature from the time he was a young child and could talk about virtually any poet from Greek poets to the present. He knew literature in the deepest and most thoughtful way and was a great teacher. One of his students was David Milch, who went on to become a, a major screenwriter in Hollywood. David currently now owns the literary rights to the Faulkner estate and is starting to produce films on Faulkner's work. One of the things that I remembered about a conversation that I had with Robert Penn Warren when he talked about growing up and he said, you know, schools have changed, he said, but when I was growing up, we had to memorize poems, good and bad, but we had to memorize poems almost every day. He said, they don't do that anymore, do they? And I said, no, they don't. But growing up in Mobile, at least through the sixth grade, I had a fifth and sixth grade teacher who, yes, we had to memorize poems, uh, good and bad. And he said, that's good for your mind. It makes you work. And he said, that's a good introduction for young people into literature. Warren was a great teacher. And when he and his old friend Cleonth Brooks began their teaching careers at LSU, they had no textbooks that they thought were adequate. So they did a mimeographed textbook that they sold for 25 cents to each student that eventually became... Uh, 
Understanding Poetry, and then a second book, Understanding Fiction. And these textbooks were used for decades by virtually every literature student in the nation. Well, so his influence went far beyond his own personal writing to how literature was taught. And significantly within those textbooks, there were a number of Southern writers like Eudora Welty who were represented. You and I had those textbooks 50 years ago. That's right. There's nothing like that now for the study of American literature. It's true, and and I think this may be a, a Southern contribution, the ability to distill and understand literature in terms of what Warren and Brooks call the new criticism, which was basically looking at the written word, at the text, and analyzing the meaning of the textual voice of the poet or the writer. And it, while many people, including our friend Bill Goodykunst, disagreed with that, it was a clear, lucid way of teaching that was based on study from childhood of classics, of Latin, of Greek, uh, of English poetry, uh, T.S. Eliot. But they had been raised uh, in a very uh, rigorous way and educated, and that carried over uh, into their whole lifetime as teachers and as writers. Bill, this is not a fair question, but let's let's look at your different categories and pick out your favorite interview from each one. You've already t- we've already talked about writers. Which one of those interviews would you say was your favorite? Well, this is like asking a parent which is your favorite child. I know. I love them all, and they are all so different. <clears throat> There's Alice Walker declaring she would like to be the the BB King of writing. She loves B.B. and wants to be known as uh, the B.B. King of literature. In the music section, there is Bobby Rush, who describes in a very moving way how a, a black DJ tells him that he won't play his music because he doesn't like the blues. And Bobby says, that hurt my heart because that's like telling a person you don't like your own mother because black people come from the blues. And a very moving kind of touching statement about his music. In painting, there is Ed McGowan with his story of this eccentric uncle. And here is McGowan as a young child at a big dinner the grandmother is having and this uncle comes in and summons everyone outside to see what he's done, and they reluctantly go out, and there they discover in a long weaving driveway he has buried these little chickens up to their neck all along the drive, and they're going cheep, cheep, cheep. And McGowan pushes through and sees this, and he said just as they were admiring it, the uncle pulls out a lawnmower and runs it over the chicken heads and horrifies the whole family. And the uncles are chasing him through the fields. They don't catch him. And they don't see him again for another 20 or 30 years. And so McGowan later, as a painter, begins to create these images of chickens and lawnmowers as a way of dealing with this nightmarish experience that he had as a child. So there are are so many powerful moments within these interviews, many of them completely unexpected, that help get a little closer to understanding the South and also to understanding these individuals whose lives are really powerfully important what they gave us in photography and music and painting and literature is a treasure that the South is is a, an intimate part of. Bill, one of the things I know from 
reading these, but also from having talked with Van Woodward and Warren and Brooks, Cleanth Brooks, is that all of them talked about how when they left the South, they seemed to become more self-identified as Southern. This was particularly true when Warren went out to California. Is that the way you felt when you ended up at Yale? Absolutely. Mr. Warren once told me that a fish never thinks about water until he's out of it. And that was certainly true for me at Yale. When I first arrived there, I knew the weather would be cold in the winter, and I went out to buy a pair of boots. And when I went into the shoe store, the uh, the salesman heard my voice, and he said, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Mississippi. He said, I thought you people in Mississippi didn't wear shoes. I said, we don't. That's why I came here. <laughs> so you you became much aware of the fact that you were in a different culture altogether. And Mr. Warren remarks at one point that in the North, they don't tell stories. They, they tell gossip and they talk in different ways. And in the, But in the South, uh, you hear real stories told with a, a kind of élan that's very special. You hear memorable stories, and Eudora recalls having Robert Penn Warren there for a visit, and after dinner, they spent many hours just telling stories. She told him stories of Jackson and political figures like Ross Barnett, her best friend Charlotte Capers, who was an incredible storyteller, had stories from Tennessee. And Warren said he had never, ever spent such an evening. And just Eudora said he laughed so hard she thought he was going to fall out of his chair. <laughs> but that's the kind of feeling that when you leave the South, you miss. As my friend Jim Cobb says, you cross the grits and iced tea line, <laughs> and not only do you get grits served with milk and uh, hot tea, uh, you lose those stories, and you miss them. You need them. Uh, it's part of your DNA to hear good stories and to have a good laugh, and when you have it, you know what it is, and you know how much you've missed it. Is that why it's not an accident that in many large communities in the North you will have something of a southern network? Particularly, I've noticed this with my own children, first in California and Los Angeles and then in Boston and in Washington. These young men and women seem to search one another out, and they make the connections. They do. Uh, in New York, you have this... Mississippi picnic every summer in Central Park, which draws thousands of people. I had a student here at the University of North Carolina from Mississippi named Tom Allen, who wrote his honors thesis on Mississippians outside the state. And we could suggest that this applies to Southerners generally outside the South, but he discovered that what they do to keep alive their ties to their roots is to fill their apartment or their home with books, with paintings, with uh, recordings that allow them to revisit and to feel like they're still connected to their roots. And that's what this book is all about. It's, as Morgan Freeman says in the blurb on the cover, this is a great book for Southerners, bearing in mind that all Southerners are not in the South. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, the most Southern of people are Southerners outside the South. They miss it. They feel like they need to connect in a deeper way than someone who still lives back home. I want to go back to the comment that you made in in your foreword about searching for the South. My effort to understand the South is searching for the Scutcherlow Hills. Yes. I make the journey knowing I will never find answers to my questions. I know you are still searching for the South, but answers, have you found any answers, or do you think there never will be 
answers? I, I think the answers are really not that important. It's just, it's the questions. The fact that you still probe and search all your life. It's like the phrase, the biblical phrase, that first we see through the glass darkly and then face to face. The glass is never clear, but we make the journey, and education is so important to all Southerners because it allows you to continue to grow through reading and through the very worlds that an education opens to you. When my book on the mule trader, Ray Lum, uh, my first title for that was his phrase, you live and learn, and then you die and forget it all. <laughs> you know, we go through life learning and putting together the pieces, trying to connect the dots, and that's so important, especially for Southerners, to know where you're from, do you know so-and-so, and how are these connected? Uh, there's a kind of joy in making those connections to the places and people that we love. But it's an ongoing journey, and... I don't feel, I have ideas that I use when I teach Southern music and Southern literature that I share with students that help them with their journey, but no one has the final answers to these questions. They ultimately will always be questions. And then, of course, as, as Jim Cobb has written very effectively and very passionately, the South, it is a changing the South in which you and I grew up, Bill, doesn't really exist anymore. We have to realize that the South has never been an unchanged world from the very first Indian settlers who arrived and then the Europeans and Africans. There has been major change in the region. There was slavery, civil war, reconstruction, Jim Crow, the New Deal, what we call the global south, the growing populations of Hispanic and Asian people. The south is constantly changing, and it's changing from agrarian to urban. The large cities increasingly dominate the nature of southern life. But through all that, there is the constant of place, of people being grounded in the places where they live and the importance of family, religion, politics, all of which are reflected in Southern music and Southern literature. And if there's a dipstick for the South, it is its music and literature. This is our great legacy and it's alive and well. And the new novels, the new music continues to flow the hip-hop, the drive-by truckers, the, the new literature and voices of people like Randall Keenan, of Asian writers. There's a whole new body of writers that I'm just learning about. But the South, in many ways, continues to have the old fundamental verities that Faulkner wrote about that will always be at the heart of its identity, whether it's an Asian-American living in New Orleans or someone whose family has been here for generations. Bill, Alfred's giving me the signal. We've got about three minutes left. Any particular last words you'd like to leave with our listeners today? Well, I just think it's exciting to be alive and well in the South today and to see the growth of interest within the academy and around the region. I was just at the Decatur Book Fair, you know, and to marvel at the many, many writers, over a hundred, who are, most of whom are writing about the South, figures like John Lewis, uh, the energy and the power of this region has never been greater. And it allows me to have the support to look back on my life through the, the book, The Storied South, in ways that I could never have imagined a few years ago. So 
it's exciting to be a part of this world and to see you, Walt, and the distinguished work you've done in South Carolina with the encyclopedia, with your television and radio production, and with your Southern Studies program at the University of South Carolina, which is doing such exciting work with Bob Brinkmeyer and many of my old friends, Dan Littlefield, Dale and Ted Rosengarden. South Carolina is a very important voice in what we're talking about. Bill Ferris, eminent professor of history at UNC Chapel Hill and author of The Storied South, Voices of Writers and Artists. Thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I have literally known Bill Ferris for a half century. We go back a long way to undergraduate days at Davidson College. And then, as we both became students of the American South, our paths crossed innumerable times. His book, The Storied South, is a tribute to Bill, but even after decades of research, writing, talking, Bill Ferris is still searching. He's still on a quest, still looking for answers. The South is still a challenge to all of us. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Next time on Walter Edgar's Journal, my guests will be Betsy Teeter of Hub City Press and James E. McTeer II, the winner of this year's First Novel Award. I feel like you can sort of boil down to the essence of history and culture by using some of that magic realism and some of looking at things through a surreal lens. And yet this book ends up in a nightmare scenario, I think. Join me for Walter Edgar's Journal, a production of ETV Radio, Friday at noon. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.